Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. You are listening to the second of a three-part mini-series, Firm Foundations, Made in God's Image, by Rev. Peter Yonker. Our Bible reading this morning is from the very first chapter in Scripture. That's Genesis chapter 1, and I'll be reading verses 26 through 31. Before I do that, let me remind you that we've started a new three-part series, three-part sermon series, and we called that uh, three-part series Firm Foundations. And what we thought is that during these times when everything is in flux, it's good to return to our foundations, to the things that do not move. And Genesis 1 through 3 is a good place to go to find those firm foundations because it answers those foundational questions of life questions like who is God and who are we as human beings and what is the nature of the natural world. And if you've been following along, you know that last week I preached on the last of those questions. What's the nature of the natural world? And we learned that this is our Father's world. It is the theater of his glory and it speaks of God's faithfulness to us. Today we're going to look at the second of those three questions and that is what are human beings? Who are we? Where we come from, and what are we made for? And to do that, let's turn to our passage, Genesis 1, from verse 26 to 31. <clears throat> then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they might rule over the fish in the sea and over the birds in the sky, and over the livestock, and the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful, and increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every living creature that moves along the ground. And God also said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made. And it was very good. And there was an evening and there was a morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Last week when I talked about um, God's teaching about the natural world and what Genesis 1 teaches us about creation. You may remember that I I also referenced what the Babylonians thought about creation. I referenced Babylonian stories, Babylonian creation myths. I talked about how the Babylonians believed that Marduk fought the great sea goddess Tiamat, who was like a dragon, and slew Tiamat and out of her body made the world. That's the Babylonian creation story. Now, maybe you wondered, why did I do that? Why do I talk about Babylonian myths when I want to talk about Genesis 1? 
I did that because if you really want to understand Genesis 1 in the depths of what it is saying, you have got to know these other stories. You've got to know the creation and beginning stories of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Because it's pretty clear that in the form we have them today, the form that Genesis 1 comes to us today, it is referencing those other stories and pushing against them. Our creation story is an ancient story. It was written down thousands and thousands of years ago. But the Babylonian stories are also ancient stories. In fact, uh, historians can tell us with great certainty that the Babylonian stories were around before the time of Moses. So that means that as the creation story was being told, and as it was getting written down, it was written down in a context where all around the Israelites, these other stories were swirling. And we know those stories were temptations to the Israelites. We know the Israelites knew those stories because the Old Testament is constantly warning God's people not to follow those other gods. They knew the stories. They were being warned against them. And so, in the form that Genesis 1 comes to us today, in the way the story is told, the story is giving a stiff arm to the Babylonian stories, to the Babylonian myths. They're written in such a way as to say, our God is not the God of Babylon. Our God is the Lord of heaven and earth. And that would have been really important at certain points in Israel's history. For example, in exile. In exile, the Jewish children would have been inundated with those Babylonian stories. And Jewish families, when they were walking through the town of Babylon, all they had to do was look up and see the great temple of Marduk, and they would feel the push of the claims of this rival god. You can imagine 10-year-old kids coming home to the family home after playing in the streets of Babylon all day, coming home and saying, Dad, my friend says that Marduk created the world out of the body of Tiamat. And you can imagine that father saying, okay, son, sit down. Let me tell you the true story of the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then going on to, to tell the story of, of Genesis 1 in a way specifically to refute the Babylonian stories. This push against the stories of Babylon is something you can actually see in the biblical text. You can see that the biblical text is referencing those stories. Here's just one example of that. Two of the great gods of the Babylonian pantheon were the god of the sun and the god of the moon. And the god of the sun was named Shamash, and the god of the moon was named Nana. Now Shamash, god of the sun, that word Shamash sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for sun. The Hebrew word for sun is Shemesh, okay? Shemesh and Shamash. You can hear how similar they are. So you'll notice, if you read back a little ahead of where I read in, in, our, in my Bible reading, when Genesis 1 describes how the moon and the sun were created, it uses interesting phrasing. Did you notice the phrasing that it used when we read it last week? It says, God created the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. 
Well, that's an interesting way of saying it. I mean, Hebrew has perfectly good words for moon and sun. Why did the author of Genesis 1 simply not write, God created the sun and God created the moon? Because he did not want that word shemesh to remind anyone of shamash. He didn't want anyone to think for an instant that the sun had sort of any independence or godlike qualities. He wanted everyone to know that the sun and the moon and the stars, those things that so many ancient people thought controlled their fate, were completely in the control of the living God. The story is written in such a way, that's only one example, I could tell you more, but the story is written in such a way as to push against those myths. And if you don't know the myths, you can't hear the depths of the story. In the same way, if we want to hear what Genesis 1 is saying about what a human being is and what we're created for, it's good to know what the Babylonians thought human beings were and where they came from. So what's the Babylonian story of human origins? The Babylonians taught that we human beings came from the blood of a slain god. The gods, Marduk, after he killed Tiamat and all his friends who were gods who were on his side, wanted some assistance in their daily lives. They were tired of doing menial jobs and they wanted someone to do the jobs for them. So they decided to create human beings. And what they did is they killed a rival god, Kingu, someone who'd sided with Tiamat, killed him, took his blood, mixed it with clay, and made human beings. What were the purpose of human beings? Well, I already referenced that a little bit. We were made to be slaves. Specifically, we were made to feed the gods. The gods were tired of making their own food. We were made to feed the Babylonian entities, according to the Babylonians, according to these myths. Andy Crouch is fond of saying that uh, human beings, in the way the Babylonians saw it, were essentially always running an enormous barbecue for the Babylonian gods. In their temples, they would make these altars and they would burn sacrifices on them, bulls, goats, sheep. That was the meat they were offering to the gods. They were feeding the gods with this meat and they'd pour out drink offerings on the same altars and that was keeping the gods from getting thirsty. So basically, everything that the Babylonians did, the reason they were created, according to those myths, was to feed the gods so the gods didn't get hangry, didn't get grumpy, and didn't lash out at human beings. So we human beings, in the Babylonians' version of things, are creatures of violence, made of blood, made to live lives of toil, feeding the gods. Okay, you may say, so what? Nobody believes that anymore. That's a Babylonian myth that's thousands of years old. Nobody believes that we're made to feed the gods anymore. True, but there are many people in this world who still have a Babylonian view of the universe. There are many people in this world who wake up in the morning and who still feel like the powers of the universe are demanding that they feed them. There are all sorts of people who wake up in the morning and hear the powers of the universe, hear the world saying to them, okay, come on, man, prove yourself. Show me what you got. Feed me. 
impress me, get my attention. And if you do something that feeds me, that shows, you, that shows me that I'm, you're worthy of my attention, I will shower you with riches and I will shower you with wealth. But if you can't give me anything, if you can't prove that you're worthy of my attention, I cast you aside. Is that so different from a bunch of gods asking to be fed? This world is full of people who wake up every day and hear the universe asking them to feed it. Genesis 1 tells a completely different story about who we are. Deliberately different. In Genesis 1, is God asking to be fed? No, exactly the opposite. God gives every fruit-bearing tree and all the trees of the field and this great world full of flourishing he gives for us to eat. An abundance, more than we could ever need. The direction of the feeding is not us up to God, it's God down to us. In Genesis 1, we're not created to be God's slaves. In fact, we're called something very different. We are called to rule. God sends us out into the world and says, welcome to your world. You are my vice regents. You are my co-rulers. Go on out there, take care of things, take good care of it, but create, garden. Go out there and do enjoyable things. Invent new things and make my world grow. I bless you with it. And finally, we are not made in Genesis 1 from the blood of a slain God created in violence. We are made in love as people made in the image of God. We are the crown of creation in Genesis 1, right? We're the very last thing God creates. And when he finally finishes making us, what does he say? But all the other things he makes, God says, it is good. But when he's finished making us, what does he say? It is very good. We are God's delight. There's lots written about what it means to be made in the image of God. And I can't possibly touch on all the various meanings of, of what the image of God means. But I want to say one thing, one thing that I think is very clear. It means that God has special affection for us. Because we're made in his image, when God looks at creation, he has special affection for his human creatures. Maybe like a parent watching a soccer game in which his or her child is playing, you watch the whole game, you pay attention to everything, but your child, that child gets special attention from you. You watch them most carefully. You see the special affection God has from, is for his people in the fact that we, alone of all the creatures he has made, are able to grieve him. We can disappoint him. We can grieve and disappoint God alone of all creatures because he loves us so much. You can only be grieved and disappointed by someone you love desperately and God loves us so much because we are made in his image. Another place where you see that deep attachment between God and his image bearers is Matthew 25. There Jesus tells us how closely he identifies with his creatures. He says this, he says, if, if there's a human being, an image bearer, 
who's hungry and no one feeds them, or thirsty and no one gives them something to drink, or lonely and no one gives that person hospitality. Jesus identifies with those people so closely that it's as if it's happening to him, as if he's the one hungry, as if he's the one being left out. That's an amazing thing. When we feel lonely, when we feel hurt, when we feel confused, when we wake up in the middle of the night perplexed and in despair, we as his image bearers are so loved by God and Jesus identifies with us so closely that he feels that too. It's as if it's happening to him. How far does that identification go? goes all the way to the cross. On the cross, in his compassion, Jesus takes all our fear and all our guilt and all our sinfulness and all our sense of failure and all our doubt into himself and he dies for us so we can be released from all those things. In the Babylonian story, human beings are these slave creatures throwing up meat to the gods. In our story, God himself comes down to earth and dies for us, and then he says to us, here's my meat, my body, my blood, eternal food for you. So deep is the Father's love for us. That's a totally different version of what a human being is. When you live in the way of Babylon, the, the world speaks to you in imperative sentences. Feed me. Show me what you got. When you live in the way of Jesus Christ, you wake up in the morning and the world says to you, good morning. You are beloved. I am holding on to you and I will never let go. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Go out into the world, my beautiful world, and do something wonderful. I am with you. Two totally different voices. One is the voice of fear, and the other is the voice of grace. Which voice do you hear in your morning? These two very different views of where human beings come from and what they are lead to very different versions of what greatness is and what success is. That's a really important question in our everyday. What, what, what is excellence in this world? What is greatness? What is success? And we all use those words, but we can mean very different things by them. Here's what human greatness looked like to the Babylonians. It looked like the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's in one of the other ancient religious stories that Babylonian children would have heard and that you can still read today, Gilgamesh um, was a great hero. He was the king of Uruk. And in the epic, he is celebrated as the greatest man, the greatest king who ever lived. What makes Gilgamesh so great in the epic? He's the strongest, he's the smartest, he's the sexiest, and he's the most savage. Here's a little bit from the introduction which describes Gilgamesh's greatness. Gilgamesh is as strong as a bull. None can withstand his arms. No sun 
is left with his father, for Gilgamesh takes them all. If any human man stands up to Gilgamesh, he wipes him out. Gilgamesh's lust leaves no virgin to her lover, neither the warrior's daughter nor the wife of a noble. Any woman that, that Gilgamesh wants to seduce, he can do it. That's greatness. And at the end of the epic, they say about Gilgamesh, of mankind, all that are known, none will ever leave a monument for generations to come to compare with his. Gilgamesh is great, says the epic, and what makes him great is that he is strong, that he's savage, that he's sexy. That's Babylonian greatness. Do elements of, of that view still linger today? Do people still define greatness in that way? Yes, I think they do. I'm a big sports fan, and so, because I'm completely deprived of any real sports, I've been watching ESPN's 10-part documentary series on Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls called The Last Dance. Maybe some of you have been watching that too. And if you're any kind of basketball fan at all, you know that Michael Jordan is held up as the greatest. He's the GOAT, right? The greatest of all time. Great. What makes Michael Jordan great? What, is it, what does it say in the documentary? What is the source of Michael Jordan's greatness? Well, it's pretty clear that it is his determination, his uber-competitiveness. Michael Jordan is fiercely competitive beyond anyone you will ever know, and he wants to beat you. He wants to show his dominance over you. He will not be happy until he wins and he's standing over you. It's made him a ferocious gambler. He's been known to bet $300,000 on one putt on the golf course. It's made him a fierce trash talker. He is an artist when it comes to berating his opponents, and according to what I've read, he would even do that to his own teammates in practice just to show his dominance over them. It's made him a person who holds a grudge. It's pretty clear as you watch the show that if somebody ever said something that put Michael Jordan a little lower than anyone else or that he felt disrespected him in any way, he remembers and he holds a grudge. When he talks about the bad boy Detroit Pistons, his hatred for them is still visceral. So Michael's creed is show your strength, make sure you win, never forget. Now, I have a lot of admiration for Michael Jordan as a basketball player. He was beautiful to watch. He was sensational. God gave him amazing gifts. Probably the most gifted basketball player to ever have played. But I would call his greatness, as it is celebrated today, the greatness of Gilgamesh. And it's not a greatness that I want for my children or yours. If the Babylonians hold up Gilgamesh as an example of the greatest human being, who do we Christians hold up? Jesus. Any differences between Gilgamesh and Jesus? Gilgamesh was stronger than any human being. No son is left with his father. Gilgamesh takes them all. He stands on every human chest triumphant. What about Jesus? How does he show his greatness? 
or maybe John 13. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his feet, all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God, says John. Wow, Jesus was all-powerful. I wonder how he'll show that power. Knowing that God had put everything under his power, Jesus got up from his meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and got down on his knees and washed his disciples' feet. That's a picture of human greatness. Not Gilgamesh standing on someone's chest, Jesus kneeling at someone's feet and washing them. Behold, the greatest man in the, in the world, the most powerful man who ever lived, washing the feet of a fisherman. Behold, the greatest man who ever lived, hanging on a cross, allowing the people he has made to spit in his face out of their anger and fear and rage and disappointment. Behold, the greatest man in the world hanging on a cross for me and for you so that we might live. Greatness is rooted in love, my friends. The greatness of a human being is rooted in the steadfast love of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. If we have all the power in the world but have not love, we are nothing. We are not great. So don't let the world lie to you. Don't let your discouragement when things are hard get the better of you. You are beloved of God. You are God's handiwork created in Christ to do great things which God prepared in advance for you to do. You are created in love, saved by love. You are sustained by love, and love will bring you home. Thanks be to God. Amen. Lord God, you know how we question ourselves and how we stumble in this world. We thank you that once again we've heard this testimony that we are deeply loved by you. Loved at our beginning, loved in our middle, and loved all the way to the end. Lord, as, as we go out into this world, this complicated world this week, help us to be great. Great with your love. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.